Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, this morning we start our series in the book of Galatians. Uh, so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you might notice that there are Bibles underneath your chairs. And, and I believe it's on page 565 in the, in the, the chair Bible there. Um, those are available for you to take if you don't have a paper Bible and you want one. Uh, I, I learned the value of those years and years ago when uh, a new believer didn't have a Bible and took that Bible and then um, later um, doing the funeral of that particular person, I was able to take that paper Bible and see passages where she highlighted gospel truths. And it was the most touching uh, experience of my life to be able to see her interact with the gospel uh, coming from a place of lostness to a place of being saved and, uh, and then doing her funeral gave me great hope to be able to read from her own paper Bible that she had taken uh, from the church. Uh, so we give those away. And, and if you're not in the habit of using a paper Bible, let me encourage you, um, not that I'm against technology, I, I use the ESV app on my phone um, regularly, but, but a paper Bible, there's just something about it with your own handwriting and your own notes and your own, that is able to help uh, your children and your loved ones around you to be able to see the passages that uh, have been meaningful and touching to you. I know some people are opposed to writing in, in their Bibles, but... Um, but I, 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 hope that, um, I hope that that's helpful. So if you don't have a Bible, take one of those paper ones. Uh, it's on page 565. And, uh, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we commit to you our time together this morning. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that your Holy Spirit might teach us by your word, that you would reveal yourself to us uh, as we seek you this morning. We pray that you would uh, convict us of sin, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would bring about the purpose for which you send your word out regularly, that it would feed us, uh, and that we might resemble you more and more. We thank you for the opportunity to walk through uh, this amazing book, uh, Galatians, and how you've used it uh, in countless generations to challenge and to change men and women uh, into your image and to free them uh, from the damnation that is legalism. We pray that you would help us to understand it and its far-reaching effects today. Help us to walk away with a greater understanding of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that is what Galatians is about. 
Uh, Galatians is about freedom in Christ. It is about the gospel and the gospel of grace. And it is against legalism. There are uh, these dualisms in Galatians. Uh, walking by the Spirit versus walking in the, fre- uh, in the flesh. Uh, living by grace versus living by legalism. There are um, multiple places where there are these dual um, places where um, uh, Paul is comparing two different things and putting them against each other. Uh, But the greatest of these in the book of Galatians is legalism versus liberty. Liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ. Uh, We begin this study with some introductory material, understanding that Paul is the one who is writing. Normally, Paul would write with an amanuensis. Uh, That was in the Roman world as just a secretary, um, and it was a profession. They didn't have an ink pen. They didn't have email. They didn't know that sounds stupid, but you know, the, the ease in which we can just communicate with each other these days sometimes lost on us that um, an actual person had to get some papyrus or some parchment, um, had to fashion um, some sort of a pen and some sort of ink and, and write down a lengthy letter like this or a lengthy letter like Romans, a lengthy letter like Revelation that had to be written out by hand on some sort of a scroll and then delivered by hand um, with all the dangers in the Roman world. Um, this was a, um, uh, a common practice of, of how things were written down. Um, Paul usually wrote through a secretary, somebody who would travel with him. And um, there, there's even evidence of some sort of a Latin uh, shorthand that's based on Greek shorthand. Because uh, you think, how did this happen? Did Paul uh, dictate the letter? Or did he scribble out a rough draft? And then the amanuensis, did he take that information and write uh, the letter himself, adding the language that he assumed Paul wanted? Was it a full-time person that traveled with Paul that was his traveling secretary? Oftentimes you'll see in maybe Romans, it says, I, Tertius, write this, and I also greet the brothers. Uh, there are letters and, and uh, verses, I mean, from the actual secretary in Scripture. Uh, but it's not so for Galatians. Uh, flip over to Galatians um, chapter 6. Um, Paul is um, is furious in this um, in this letter, and and starting in verse six um, of chapter one, all the way through chapter six, verse eleven. Look at verse eleven of chapter six. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Right, that's the bold caps, underline. If you've ever sent, um, the first time I sent an email, early 2000s or whatever, I just, I don't know, I just all capped it. And uh, somebody replied back to me and said, hey, when you all cap something, you know, it sounds like you're shouting. So just, that's like email language for shouting. Paul's letter to the Galatians is, is all caps, all right? See with what large letters I'm writing. The tone starts... Flip back to chapter 1. The tone of the letter starts with verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
he continues to defend his apostleship and the gospel that he shared with them in chapters 1 and 2. Look at chapter 3, just the first verse. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Then he goes into, um, he continues his rant. Um, He doesn't really stop. Um, Chapter 5, verse 2, look, I say, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Um, There is just all throughout the letter, he starts right away at a tone of urgency and all caps, and it doesn't stop until 6.11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Uh, And then in the end, he, um, he finishes it just kind of quickly in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I love verse 17. I occasionally quote this, um, to uh, to people from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Right? Isn't a great verse. Hey, just from now on, don't don't trouble me anymore. Uh, he says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So Paul could say, hey, look at my I've got scars on my flesh for the gospel. So don't don't give me any trouble anymore. A <laughs> uh, good quote for you to remember. So we're going to walk through Galatians. It, it may take us um, eighteen or twenty weeks, but uh, but we're going to walk through this important book. Uh, Galatians was written in 47 or 48 AD. Now, if you think about that, Jesus crucified um, two possible dates, April 7th of 30 AD or possibly 33 AD. Um, But most scholars take that first date. So if Jesus was crucified April 7th of 30 AD, the timeline for Paul means that the stoning of Stephen happened within a couple years just a couple of years, Stephen was stoned, and Acts tells us that they, the ones who stoned Stephen handed their coats to a young man named Saul, who gladly held their coats while they stoned Stephen to death. And then for one to three years, Paul, um, some passages say that he persecuted the church, others describe a murdering or an approval of murder. Paul was murdering Christians or persecuting Christians for that period. And then we all know what happens on the road to Damascus, right? Paul was confronted uh, by Jesus Christ himself, knocked off of his horse, uh, saw the light, heard a voice. Paul, Paul, why do you kick against the goads? And he describes his testimony in Acts uh, 22 and 24. And then again, I think it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. Um, Paul uh, is describing, though, um, his testimony uh, in, uh, in chapter 9, that's where he has the Damascus Road experience. All that happened early. But in chapter 2 of Galatians, we're going to learn that he, he doesn't immediately go to Jerusalem to uh, meet with the apostles. He goes to Arabia. He goes to Damascus. He goes back. Uh, and then after a few years, he goes and checks in in Jerusalem back after having persecuting the church. Then he goes back to Tarsus. And he's away for 10 or 15 years. So in that long period of time, Paul is off the radar, and then Barnabas goes to get him, and then they're ministering together in Antioch, and then they are set apart after a time of prayer and fasting in Antioch, Uh, and during that time, uh, Acts um, chapter um, 13, they were sent off, and then Paul and Barnabas and John Mark go off on their first missionary journey. 
Mark bails uh, after Cyprus, and then they move on and they go to Galatia. So that's where they're at. They're going to the churches in Galatia. Um, and so they establish a handful of churches there. And then right after Paul leaves from that journey, uh, a group of people come in and they start to poison them with this legalistic idea. And so Paul fires off a letter right away, 47, 48. And then the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, we're going to get to that in a minute. The Jerusalem council happens 49, 50, somewhere in that area. Um, And so that's kind of the timeline if you're taking notes. Um, Paul, I've already talked about that, wrote the letter himself. Paul... um, uh, and is is identifying himself as an apostle. Um, I used to think they messed up with Matthias and Joseph Barsabbas in Acts chapter one. Do you know what I mean? In Acts chapter one, uh, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, Peter stands up among 120, and um, Judas has, from a sour conscience, hanged himself. Right, And so they're gathering in the upper room before the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Peter in Acts chapter 1 says, um, you know, he, he quotes from Psalm 69, predicting that Judas uh, will, uh, will have left, uh, and that uh, from Psalm 109 that they should replace him. And so they, they um, offer up this, uh, ta- this um, process for choosing the next apostle. In Acts chapter 1, um, he said in verse 21, let another take his place of office. So the, some, uh, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? There was a lot of people who were with Jesus from John's baptism all the way to the ascension. People, we don't even know their names. The first time we know uh, Joseph Barsabbas' name and Matthias is right here, but they were a part of Jesus' disciples, not apostles. There were a large number of people who followed Jesus from the beginning of John's baptism up until the day he ascended from us. And so they put forward two, in verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, And then they prayed and they cast lots uh, for that apostleship. Um, So I thought, you know, maybe Peter just jumped the gun. And I used to ask all my New Testament professors at seminary, hey, was, was Matthias really supposed to be an apostle or did Jesus himself choose Paul to be the 12th apostle and Peter just jumped the gun and and none of them really um, understood my objection or (laughs) I don't know why I thought this way, but um, they they didn't ever really answer it. They just said, no, Matthias was supposed to be an apostle and Paul is in addition to that an apostle. I don't know why I was fixated on the number 12 apostles, but Paul identifies himself as an apostle And he says, I'm an apostle, not from men. So he's identifying himself as an apostle from Jesus. Jesus tasked Paul with an assignment. An apostle just means messenger. That's all it means. Apostolos is the Greek word, and it means messenger or delegate. And it just means to be um, an official on a mission an official on a mission. And so Paul says, I became a capital A apostle 
because I saw the risen Jesus and he commissioned me even right away. On the road to Damascus, he said, go into Damascus and I will show you all that you must suffer for my name. Paul was um, unable to see for three days, blinded, didn't eat or didn't drink until um, uh, someone came and laid hands on him and the scales fell from his eyes. Paul became this apostle. Um, he became this apostle. And, and you might ask, why are you making a big deal about this? <laughs> it matters to us because if Paul is not an apostle, then his words are not authoritative. And the whole book to Galatians and the gospel that is by grace through faith alone and not by legalistic additions to the faith, all that goes away if you can't trust Paul. And that's what the people who went into the churches of Galatia and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Pisidian Antioch, those four major places where Paul developed churches, those people went into those places after him and stirred up the crowd and troubled them. So Paul's apostleship matters. If he's not an apostle, then his words are not authoritative. He's just a guy who saw some visions and preached the gospel, and the Galatians are left wondering, do we trust him or do we not? Do we trust these other Judaizers or not? So he writes that, uh, um, that he is an apostle. It's then addressed to the churches of Galatia. Um, a minor point here, Galatia is a region, a Roman region uh, in modern day Turkey. It's not a city. Most of the New Testament letters are written to a church in a particular city. Corinthians was written to the believers in Corinth. Thessalonians was written to the believers in Thessalonica. Um, Ephesians was written to the believers in the city of Ephesus. Colossians was written to the believers in the city of Colossae. Uh, Philippi, um, the Philippians was written to the believers in Philippi. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are written to individuals, but this book, Galatians and Romans, are written to lots of churches in a region. All the churches in Rome received um, Paul's epistle, Romans, and he didn't call it Romans, but we call it that. The Galatian believers and churches, um, they received this letter. So Paul writes to all those churches in Galatia. Verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 3 through 5. Uh, Paul starts with this idea, grace to you and peace. This idea of grace and peace being that the gospel is free and it is given to us in Christ, not by our own works. That's the idea of grace, that God uh, in his sovereignty and in his affection and love for you, um, that he chose you, not because you were special, right? Uh, I've told this story before, but um, in kindergarten, my teacher called me special and she she moved my chair right up next to hers, and she asked me to be her special helper. And it did something amazing for me. It kind of made me feel good about myself. Uh, I felt like her special helper. She would give me the staple remover, and, and there, she would hand me a whole stack of papers and say, you're a special helper. You, you just need to unstaple all these papers. I went through my entire school career thinking I was special, all the way through college. 
from this teacher. And when I met Julie and I met her uh, family and before we got married, um, we had a luncheon and, and we were describing, just telling sort of about our, our uh, getting to know each other. And, and I mentioned this particular story. And Julie just chimes in, that, I, that's what they taught us to do to the worst kids. The worst kids in elementary education, they said, you tell them to be your helper and you bring them. The most ornery kids, she said, oh, I know who you were. And, so, and Julie's mom said, oh, Julianne, he is special. He is special. Gibson, you are special. And, and so I was curious. I thought, well, I, all this time, I thought I was special. I thought the, the teacher really saw something unique in me. And, and this carried over for years. And then one day, uh, maybe five or six years ago, when Ridgeline was just starting, and I started to realize that God uh, called me to plant this church, and my thought was, he wanted me to plant this church so that I could do all these things, but what, what, what happened was, he was using the planting of this church to reveal things in me that I didn't know were even there, and that this was part of my own sanctification, that, that, that all this junk in my own heart was coming out, the secret ambition, and the, these sinful desires, and all these things, and, and so while I thought he wanted to use me because I was special and unique and had a gift to offer, he was using me. He, it was like he was moving my desk right up next to his and saying, I want you to be right here because if you're, if you're working right here next to me, then, then this is going to be part of your growth and your own sanctification. See, there was a shift in my thinking there of the grace of God that would, that would use me not because I deserved it, not because I had something great to offer, but because he chose the least of us. 1 Corinthians 4 describes, I think it is, that he chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the, the, the things that are not to shame the things that are. That God doesn't choose the best and brightest of us to do his work. And you might hardly say amen, right, to me. That's all right, I agree with you. God, I heard one evangelist say, it's as though God reached into the garbage disposal and picked out the nastiest thing he could find and brought it out and shined it up for his glory. That's how I feel sometimes about my testimony, that God would take me from where I was and that he would polish me up and clean me up so that people could see the evidence of grace in my life. No one looks at me and says, oh man, that guy's you know, a great expositor or a great uh, orator. There's, you look at me and you say, there must be a God from my point of view because he saved me by grace. And this is, the, this is the, the way the gospel works. It is a gospel of grace. But it's not just a gospel of grace, it's a gospel of peace. You know, before I became a believer, um, uh, before I gave my life to Christ, I, I, in the waning days of my own flesh, in my own sinfulness, I, I just had no peace at all. My conscience tormented me. I had all these sins and things that I had committed, and I had nothing to do with them. No, I, I couldn't put them anywhere. I had no atonement, and, and so I was racked with guilt, have you ever um, had some sort of insomnia where you just, you might fall asleep, but then you can't stay asleep. And then as soon as you wake up, your mind just starts running. That defined the last three or four months of my pre-Christian life of just racked with uh, a, a, a guilty conscience. And I had nothing I could remedy it with. And it wasn't until I became a believer and I gave my life to Christ that even just within a few weeks, I found myself sleeping with peace. There's something, um, there's something horrible about a guilty conscience that worms itself into your mind and won't let you rest. 
That's the gospel um, brings that sort of peace to um, a soul that is constantly working, that is constantly tormented. The gospel brings a settled, I'm right with God. And if you don't know what I mean by that, um, that sort of peace is, um, is the most valuable thing you can find. One of the, those gospel provisions that is so beautiful, that sort of peace from a guilty conscience of forgiveness of sins. Paul goes on saying, grace to you, peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and to deliver us from the present evil age. He gives us a bit of a summary of the gospel. Uh, He talks about the substitution, right? He gave himself for us and he delivers us. That's the rescue mission. Um, I say this often, your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. I ask people who are not yet Christ followers, what would you say your greatest need is today? And some people will say, if I just had a better job or if I just had a um, a better relationship with my parents or if I just had a better relationship with my spouse or if I just could have this health issue uh, dialed in and really healed, if if this or if that, and, and people often point to what they think is their greatest need. Do you remember that story in the Gospels when Jesus uh, is back in his hometown in Capernaum and he's teaching and the entire house is filled? It's so full that uh, no one can get in and these four friends grab a paralytic and they try to make their way into the house. They can't get in. It's filled. And so what do they do? They take that paralytic on his mat and they climb up on the roof and they begin to dismantle the roof and they, they open up the roof to the place where Jesus is teaching and they, they drop that guy. I mean, can you imagine if somebody dropped, airlifted somebody in in the middle of my message here? And that's the kind of scene that it was. Jesus in mid-sentence when the ceiling tiles are falling and this man is lowered in front of them and Jesus looks at the paralytic and what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. That's not what he needed from our point of view. That's not what he needed from his friend's point of view. His friends thought he needs to be healed. He needs, to, he needs his legs. He needs to be able to move. He needs healing from his paralysis. But Jesus saw that his greatest need was not his most urgent physical apparent need, but it was the forgiveness of sins. Now that's the heart of the gospel right there. The heart of the gospel is that you need your sins forgiven. Oftentimes I'll say to someone, uh, if, if you stood before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? Their number one response is what? Because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I don't, I'm good enough to get to God and to get into heaven on my own merit. Listen, the gospel says we're not. Gospel says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't be good enough. We're not good enough in ourselves. And so the greatest thing that Jesus accomplishes for us is the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is summarizing that. He's summarizing the gospel. Verse four, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. You see, getting the gospel right is at the heart of Galatians. It is grace by faith, not by works, and not by legalism. You are saved by grace through faith, 
And then you are sustained by grace through faith in Christ. Grace doesn't save you so that you can then, by your own power, accomplish the rest of your salvation. Grace is what saved you in the beginning, and grace is what saves you in the end and all along the way. We don't just leave grace at the gate of salvation. John Owen said, we can begin each day with the deeply encouraging realization that I'm accepted by God, not on the basis of my personal performance, but on the basis of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'll repeat, we can begin each day with the deeply encouraging realization that I'm accepted by God, not on the basis of my personal performance, but on the basis of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Christ. See, oftentimes we can live as though God is happy with us if we say our prayers and we, we give enough and if we go to church enough and if we witness enough and if we don't do a sin enough and if we, listen, God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance in Christ, but based on what Christ accomplished for you at the cross. And that's grace, right? That's grace. Uh, I went to a doctor not too long ago and every time I go to this particular doctor, I notice um, in the corners of the, the, the door when I first walk in, just right after I cross the threshold, I look over and I see um, these two um, sandals stenciled into the floor and, um, and some, um, some Indian writing. And it's a, it's a Hindu prayer. Uh, there's some incense in a different corner. There's a little Buddha in another place. There is uh, all these little things around. Um, and so I recently, um, I essentially gave my doctor an opportunity to witness to me uh, about her religion. And I, I, I asked questions. I listened for the better part of an hour, uh, just what about this? And what do you think about that? And tell me more about this. And, and essentially it came down to among the thousands of gods that her people worship, it came down to peace and a clear conscience are constantly eluding them. You can never quite do enough. I visited a friend in Johns Hopkins um, Hospital not too long ago and in their culture, he was telling me that they had um, bought a cow for a village in their home country of Bangladesh and that they had offered it to a particular God for her healing in her honor and distributed all the beef to all the people in that community. They were instructed to pray at certain times of the day, at certain moon configurations and certain periods and, and after certain fastings and all these things that they did, all this religiosity, all of these things were in an effort to find peace with God. And the concept of grace blows that out of the water. The concept of grace is that God makes peace with us, not the other way around. The world constantly, this is a foreign idea to my doctor, and it can become a foreign concept to churches in our own culture. That is the idea that God's unmerited favor is free, that we don't have to work for it, 
is unique, revolutionary, and life-transforming. In reality, every human being struggles to grasp the biblical concept of God's grace because everyone, listen, everyone is born with a nature that insists we can make our own way to God. Started right there in the Garden of Eden. When Satan comes in, he says, if you only eat this, then you can be like God yourself. If you do something, then you don't need God anymore. You can be like him yourself. You can, you can have your own way. It's the gospel of works introduced at the very beginning. And our human nature, the sin nature passed on to us at birth, is this idea that we're born with a nature that insists we can work ourselves to God. Even after we're saved, even after we're saved by grace, there's still traces and residue of a performance-based mentality that we can struggle with, where we think we can earn God's favor by what we do. But if we leave grace behind, we become like every other religion in the world. We lose that which is distinct and eternal, eternally life-transforming in the gospel. Paul is so angry about it. Let's skip down to verse 9. Look what he says. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned to hell if he's altering the gospel. If he's changing the gospel, he says eternal condemnation awaits them. So what are we talking about? Why is Paul so fired up? There's one uh, critical, important piece of background information that you need to know about Galatians. It's, it's in the word Judaizer. Judaizer. A Judaizer um, was a person who had received Christ, been saved. They preached Jesus. But then they added to the gospel works, the Mosaic law. Not only do you have to receive Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Christ and repent of your sins and believe in him, but now you have to live a performance-based life. Now you have to follow the, the law of Moses. And these Judaizers, they came in after Paul left and troubled the churches with additions. Oh, you, you, you were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now you need to do this. Now you need to be circumcised. Now you need to follow the dietary laws and restrictions. Now you need to add to the gospel all the works of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant that came before Christ. They preached Jesus, but they added something to the gospel. And this is what has Paul so spitting mad. <laughs> because he said, they were saying, you have to believe in Jesus plus become a Jew. And so they're adding legalism to the gospel. Now all this happened before the Jerusalem Council. If you don't know what I'm talking about, turn to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have come back uh, to Antioch in Syria, to their home base, and they're reporting what they've done, and they're talking about all the Gentiles. See, this is right when the Gentiles were starting to believe. And something happened. Acts 15 says, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
You see what they did? They added law to grace. They added law to grace. What happens? Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. They went toe-to-toe with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this is the first major church council. 15, maybe 20 years after Jesus is ascended. There's a major church council and they're all the elders, all the apostles, all the church leaders. Verse three, they're being sent on their way by the church. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. They described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and it brought great joy to all the brothers. Um, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the first contention about the gospel of grace. Verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's referring to, remember that scene? And he's on um, Simon the Tanner's roof and Cornelius sends for Peter. And, and Peter has this crazy vision of a sheet with all kinds of animals in it. You remember this scene? And it's being let down out of heaven and, and the, the Lord says, hey, rise up, kill and eat and go hunting, Peter. And Peter's like, no way. I'm not going to eat anything. Nothing unclean has ever entered my lips. And, and three times that happened. Three times the sheet was taken up. And God kept saying, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And then he's told, someone's going to come sin for you. Go with him without debate. Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius. And when he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, um, the Gentiles hear the good news, and this is Acts chapter 10, um, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. Verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers among, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were all amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even among the Gentiles. That's what Peter's referring to in Acts chapter 15. So he reminds them, Verse 8 in chapter 15, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. You see, you see how the gospel is by grace through faith? The Judaizers wanted to come and add works. They wanted to add legalism. The, the, the believers in the Jerusalem council, they go on and they, they uh, verse 19 of chapter 15, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from things that have been strangled from blood. What does that even mean? He's saying, don't add to them the whole law of Moses. But if we're gonna worship together in the same church, if Jews and Gentiles redeemed by Christ are gonna worship together, there's a couple of things that are particularly disgusting to us that will offend the believers um, from one side or the other. And that's these particular things. It, you're going to keep the peace within the body of Christ if you abstain from a couple of things, but this is not for your salvation. 
This is not for your salvation. The gospel is free. The Holy Spirit came without them having to fulfill the law of Moses. Are you tracking with me? Do you understand this? Because legalism is so nasty. There are two ditches on the gospel road of grace on either side. One is license. Jesus set me free. I can live however I want. I can have all the forgiveness of sins I want. And and that sort of license to sin all you want is a ditch. It is not the gospel. It is how to uh, get away from the gospel. The other gospel ditch, the other ditch on the other side of the gospel of grace is legalism. Legalism is just as disgusting as licentiousness or license to sin. What is legalism then? Legalism is working in your own power. Legalism is you accomplishing something in your own power. Legalism is working according to your own rules. Legalism adds things to the gospel. Legalism adds things to our practice and faith that aren't necessarily spelled out in Scripture. We can add things all the time. The way we dress, the way we sing, the way we worship, the way we pray, the way we walk. There are things that the gospel, um, that the Bible doesn't teach, but we add on to it and we, we sometimes elevate our own rules, right? And when we do that, we're in danger of legalism because if somebody breaks one of our rules, sometimes we get more mad, right? It's not a biblical rule, but we've added a rule. And if somebody doesn't abide by our rule, then, then the church can become legalistic. If someone doesn't look right, act right, speak right, even if it's, not, even if it's in, in line with scripture and with the gospel. Legalism is also not just working in our own power, not just working according to our own rules, but legalism is working to earn God's favor. It's a performance-based faith that says if I'm reading, if I'm praying, if I'm giving, if I'm serving, if I'm confessing, then God will be pleased with me. Listen, this is going to be freeing for some of you. The startling truth of Christianity is that God's pleasure is not based on your performance. The legal the legalist in us resists this and we think, well, certainly I have to do something to make God happy. But the truth is that God is perfectly pleased with you because of what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross. And when God looks down at you and he sees uh, the righteousness of Christ that covers you, he's perfectly pleased with you. And how could you improve on that? How could you improve on the righteousness of Christ? Do you think being here and as if God's checking role that in addition to the righteousness of Christ, you also showed up? Or you also read your your Bible six days this week. Listen, God is not pleased with us based on that performance. So legalism is adding something to the gospel. But when we realize that um, legalism can be destroyed when we realize two things. The gospel is free and the gospel is freeing. The gospel is free and the gospel is freeing. And when we see that, legalism becomes destroyed as an idol in our own hearts. The gospel is free. Uh, The gospel, Paul starts with grace and peace. He ends the letter in chapter six, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Grace is used seven times in this letter. Paul uses it a hundred times in the New Testament. Grace um, defines the gospel and it describes the free nature of the gospel. 
God's favor is free. His mercy is free. His forgiveness is free. Listen, when Martin Luther realized this in his translation and study of of Galatians, it led him to spark the Protestant Reformation, right? Why? Why was the need of, of reform? Because they were selling indulgences. A a Catholic preacher would go town to town and he would say, you see this splinter? It was recovered um, in the Crusades and we we found this splinter and it was from the actual cross of Christ. And if you touch it, it has grace in it. And and, and that grace will knock a hundred years off your stay in purgatory. And so they would preach these indulgences. All you have to do is for a thousand dollars, come and put your finger on this splinter of the cross and receive grace to forgive your sins. They were charging for forgiveness of sins. And this this led to all of these terrible practices of of fundraising for the Vatican, (laughs) selling forgiveness. And and Martin Luther in the Reformation in 1517, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door of the church of Wittenberg, it, it, it exposed all of these things, but it was sparked by Galatians that the gospel is free. God's forgiveness is free. You don't have to pay for it. We don't charge you to hear the gospel. His favor is free. His mercy is free. His forgiveness is free. And it's not based on your performance. And so when you try to add your performance to it, when you try to add to the gospel, you pollute the whole thing. If, um, if I offered you this, I'm glad that didn't squeak, by the way. Uh, sometimes if I step around the speakers, it's, if I offered you this, this purified water, if you were so thirsty and you wanted this so bad, and I offered you this water, and I said, I'll give it to you, but let me add one drop of poison. Would you drink it? Yeah, DJ, we wouldn't drink it, would we? No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't drink it because one drop changes the nature. It's not free. It's not water anymore. It's toxic to us. The Judaizers were coming through adding something to the gospel that polluted it. The purest form of the gospel has no additives. And to add to it is to fundamentally change the gospel. But not only is the gospel free, but the gospel is also freeing. We are set free in Christ. Uh, We're going to get to this in Galatians 5, that that we're set free from slavery. Um, We're set free from being slaves to our own sin nature, that which we uh, are held captive by, our sin nature. Uh, We are set free from that. This is the beauty of Galatians. uh, and, And it's important for us as we study this, to ask ourselves and examine ourselves in this way. What are you adding to the gospel? What legalistic tendencies or licensed tendencies pollute the free gospel of grace in your life? Is it believe in Jesus and read a particular version of the Bible? Is it believe in Jesus and perform a certain number of works? Is it believe in Jesus plus The gospel plus anything equals nothing. The gospel plus anything equals nothing. But the gospel plus nothing equals everything. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And that grace is what has the power to transform us. 
Let's close this word of prayer. Father, we, we worship you for that. We don't deserve your favor. We don't deserve your mercy. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were completely cut off, cut off from you. And though our flesh says that we need to work for and achieve our salvation and righteous standing with you, the gospel says there is nothing in us. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were as dead as Lazarus four days in the tomb. Dead to the point of smelling dead. We were so dead in our trespasses and sins that we could not accomplish salvation without the grace that was initiated way back in Genesis 1, way back in Genesis 2, way back at creation. When you created with the potential for us to sin, you created with the plan of redemption in mind. And that plan was executed flawlessly through the ages, culminating in the cross of Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, you fulfilled everything needed for the forgiveness of sins. How dare us think that we can add even the smallest bit to salvation. We praise you that the gospel doesn't tell us what we have to do to please you. It's instead it announces that you are pleased with us based solely on Christ's accomplishment in his death and resurrection and our identification with him through faith and repentance. That's reason to worship. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.